2: Good Monday morning. Welcome to Squawk on the Street. I'm Carl Kington here with Kelly Evans and Mike Santoli. Kramer and Faber have the morning off. Coming off the best day for stocks on Friday in a couple of weeks as we remain on stimulus watch. As Joe said, busy week ahead with the debate. Jobs Friday. Got some M&A and TikTok news in the mix as well. Our roadmap begins with futures indicating a jump at the open as stocks look for a second straight day in the green. Is the September swoon over?
3: then is stimulus back on the table. Speaker Pelosi says there's a chance she and the Treasury Secretary can still reach a deal. And later, a pause for TikTok,
4: why a judge sided with ByteDance and blocked the Trump administration's ban.
2: As we said at the top, uh, futures do imply a big open to uh, start this Monday morning, of course, coming off the first four-week decline of the year. Uh, Mike, you did some writing over the weekend, uh, largely about the degree to which September is doing the job it's supposed to do, uh, that being the sort of pause that refreshes.
4: Yeah, the argument here is that if we came into September with the markets at record highs and everything looking very stretched to the upside, sentiment, you know, the technical position of stocks, maybe even hopes uh, for an immediate stimulus, and this four-week decline, has largely reset uh, a lot of those uh, a lot of those factors, right? You have sentiment very much cooled off, big outflows from equity funds. You definitely have seen a a huge short position develop in Nasdaq futures. So pretty much 180 degrees on that front, although I would say back in the neutral zone, not necessarily super bearish. Uh, And then just, uh, you know, you have 10 to 20 percent coming off the top of a lot of the leading uh, Nasdaq stocks, just resetting, uh, I think, expectations in a a large way. And then uh, maybe the final piece of that, and I've talked about this for a couple weeks, we have front-loaded so much anxiety about the election, whether we'll have an outcome, whether we won't, and there's been a ton of of hedging and I think buildup of, of of cash and uh, and worry uh, in advance of that, which at least argues that uh, people aren't going in blithely uh, thinking that this is going to be smooth, and all of a sudden the fourth-quarter rally is starting. So you know, there's never you don't ring a bell at the top or at the bottom of a correction. So I wouldn't say that somehow it's got to happen this way. That last week was some, somehow the low of this pullback seems a little cute to just get to 10% and then take off again. But that being said, it wouldn't be surprising to say the risk rewards better than it was four weeks ago, Kelly.
3: Mike, wouldn't you say that the biggest kind of divide on the street right now is if we resume, is it the old stuff that resumes or the new stuff, right? Do we go back to big tech is working because it had a little correction, a little pullback here, and the people who say this stuff is going to be the trend for you know years to come, those are the places you have to be, versus everyone who's been arguing for value over growth and not to overgeneralize, but you know, if the macro is intact and still getting better then it's the materials which started to break out or the financials which have had a good day here and there. I mean, to me, it, it feels like so much comes down to, you know, which leadership uh, segment you think is going to resume. And wouldn't it frankly be a good sign? If it's some of the value stuff, although I think we'd take it either way.
4: No, I agree that that's absolutely the debate. And I do think that what I would characterize as a broadening of the rally or more of a cyclical tone to the rally, I don't know if you want to get caught up in definitional stuff, but value is going to take you right to financials and energy and chain retail and a lot of busted business models so I think that's one of the arguments why value as it's defined is not hasn't really worked that well but cyclical as you, you know to your point industrials doing fine you know all the internal stuff if you looked at how September has behaved has not really told you that the market is registering fresh anxiety about you know the economy going into some kind of a double dip it's much more about you know field position and, and getting uh, some of the froth off the market so I do agree with you there I don't know that it's a zero-sum game it doesn't have to be one type of the other. I think everyone would be happy if we do not have five big tech stocks, you know, pitching a shutout against the rest of the market, which is the way it felt back in August. So <laughs> I think that's the uh, that's the way that maybe uh, we can come out of this and not have it be one way or the other.
2: Right, right. And that's why uh, it's so important, guys, to keep our eyes on what's happening in Europe uh, as regards to COVID. And of course, here in the States, uh, we're averaging about 43,000 new cases a day. That's up in a couple of weeks, Kelly, and maybe, I mean, maybe the sort of bearish uh, data points that Mike points to with the short interest positioning, uh, some of the high yield uh, spreads perhaps and outflows are maybe there for a reason because we are, again, trying to discount whether or not the phenomenon that's happening in Europe as we go into the fall is going to be something that we see here in the States, even as states like Florida
3: lift virtually all of their COVID restrictions on things like restaurants. Bingo, Carl. So here's the question. So you start to see the case count here pick up again, and we're going to have a little bit of a laboratory, right? If a state like Florida says people are going to take the precautions that they have to to take, but unless our healthcare system is about to be overwhelmed or something like that, we are not shutting this thing down. So my guess is you'd see a little bit of an impact from people choosing to kind of stay in, but we're going to maybe see a very different economy Through the second time around, and look at what happened over the summer. I mean, we had COVID spreading in June, in July, in this country, and the and the rebound was happening because the shutdowns were over and stuff was starting to reopen again. So it reminds me of when we were talking to Tillman last week, and he said, "Look, you know, I can operate my restaurants if you just tell me what the number is. Is it 50 percent? Is it 25? Is it 75? Just give me something. I think what every business wants to know right now is just." Am I going to get shut down again or not? And if not, then I can try to figure out a way through this.
2: Right, right. Of course, uh, New York City starts indoor dining uh, on Wednesday, and we're going to watch that closely. And, you know, Mike, um, as far as vaccine news goes, uh, nothing's linear, right? We got some great news out of J&J, not surprising news, but positive data points last week. Today, it's Inovio. Uh, Shares are down 34 percent pre-market as it's phase two and three gets put on hold because, as they say, the FDA has additional questions, uh, our Meg Terrell reports, including about its delivery device. So this is going to be a series of steps forward and steps uh, backward.
4: Yeah, no doubt about it. Uh, I do think that both the risks of, you know, fall and winter uh, case uh, counts going up, as well as a little bit of a bumpy ride in terms of vaccine approval, they're going to be the push-pull of this market, even as we're sort of in the time window, and I've been saying this for a while, but in the time window when there is the premise that we are going to have some kind of, you know, vaccine hitting the market, even if it's not about broad distribution, it just seems like there's this sense in there that there's upside risk to the market because we're not sitting here wondering if there are solutions in train. So I don't think that uh, that one day's moves ought to be pinned on either vaccine disappointment or hopes. I just think it's basically people are assuming we're moving in the right direction. If the market looks six months ahead, it's kind of figuring that somewhere in that six month zone, we're going to have, uh, you know, better, not worse uh, opportunities to, to fight back against the virus. Carl.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And maybe with some uh, maybe with stimulus in the meantime, guys, as we uh, watch commentary from the speaker about potential compromises between her and the Treasury secretary. Eamon Javers is with us this morning on that front. Eamon, Art Cashin this morning writes, uh, there's kind of a perverse logic coming out of Washington that with the partisanship shifting to the judicial, there may be some space for accommodation on a stimulus plan.
5: Well, there's a lot of perverse logic in Washington, Carl, and so maybe that does uh, sort of take some of the focus away and allow dealmakers to cut a deal here while everybody else is watching the Supreme Court fight. So there is some political sense to that. Uh, But Nancy Pelosi, as you mentioned, was on television yesterday on CNN. Uh, She was talking about that $2.4 trillion proposal that Democrats have. She says they're going to move forward with it this week. They may even put it on the floor, but she was couching it all as if this bill that they're talking about is really uh, a lever to get the negotiations up and running again in full steam. She's talking about reaching some kind of accommodation with Treasury Secretary Steven Mnuchin uh, as soon as this week, and she said there's a chance for that, even though the political dynamics have not played out that way at all so far this year. So Pelosi sort of raising the idea of a deal, but there's so much hanging over. This negotiation, Carl. As you point out, the, the Supreme Court nomination is just one of those things. We've got the presidential debate tomorrow night, and one of the questions will be: Do we see a game-changing performance from either of the two candidates there? That could shift the political dynamic and the calculations on both sides of the aisle. Uh, the government shutdown uh, bill: there's there is a deal in place. We've been told to make sure that that moves uh, this week before the end of the fiscal year. Uh, we'll see if that deal holds, and they are able to keep a clean government shutdown uh, bill moving forward and keep the government open. And then, of course, the Supreme Court battle. Just so much emotion around that, Carl. And Democrats particularly frustrated that the president is moving forward on the eve of a presidential election here, when Republicans had suggested that's not all at all the way to handle this, uh, under Barack Obama now saying, under Donald Trump, yep, we're going to move forward. There's emotion and intensity around that, and you have a lot of Democrats who are saying we need to shut down the entire process in Washington in order to raise our objections and make, make it felt uh, that we're against this, even though the Democrats don't have the votes, it seems, at this point, to stop the president's pick here. So any one of those things could change the dynamic. And we'll be watching all of it this week, Carl.
2: Yeah. You know, Eamon, uh, for several weeks, uh, Majority Leader McConnell would come on and say, look, I've got 20 senators in my caucus who feel we've already added enough to the federal debt. Is there a sense that that number has dwindled as companies like American Airlines have talked about the cliff that comes with layoffs really beginning this Thursday on the 1st?
5: Yeah, look, I think one of the things that would really dwindle that number is if you see those layoffs actually come to fruition, right? As long as they're theoretical, something that may happen in the future, you know, voters at home aren't feeling that pain and the the devastation of families and economic livelihoods that comes along with that. uh, that, That's all sort of political theory. Once that happens, it's very real in the lives of voters and those senators will feel it. Uh, You would think that that would be something that would change the calculation. But the president has not really been out there twisting. Republican arms. He's not been uh, making the case to Senate Republicans that this is something he absolutely wants. In fact, he has also been skeptical that there's been too much spending uh, among these Democratic proposals. He said this is just money going to Democratic states and Democratic cities for their mismanagement from years ago. This isn't something I want to get involved in. Uh, Does the debate, does the timing of the election, does any of that change his calculation as he moves forward? Does he want to start twisting arms to actually get a deal done? We haven't seen it so far
3: the odds of doing something piecemeal instead of one big bill when we talked to larry kudlow last week he said i think he called it kids and jobs but he said look they would move forward on i believe ppp and aid for schools why i mean does it feel to you like that's a possible way forward here is to do smaller specific bills instead of one larger one
5: no, I don't think so. And the reason why is that if, de- if Democrats agreed to that, they'd be giving up their leverage, right? I mean, Democrats know that there are very popular political things in here, uh, and, and their leverage is to use those things and attach some of their other things onto it in one large package. Nancy Pelosi has said as much explicitly. Uh, if Democrats were to agree to move smaller bills, they'd give up their leverage to get the other things they want. Tactically, that's just not where they're going to go, it doesn't seem.
2: Eamon, thanks. We're going to watch that. Obviously, a huge story for the markets as uh, the potential for a compromise remains on investors' minds. In the meantime, uh, this federal judge temporarily blocking the ban of TikTok downloads is a huge story. And for that, we'll turn to Eunice Yoon today. Hi, Eunice.
6: Hey, Carl. Well, TikTok and its Chinese owner, ByteDance, say that they are pleased with the injunction, uh, but um, mainly because Americans can continue to use and download the app in the United States, but the decision does not cover the broader ban that's set to go into effect on November 12th. So because of that, tonight, state media have been lashing out once again at the deal, uh, saying even though the injunction is welcome, that Beijing would, quote, undoubtedly prepare proportional countermeasures for what it says could become piracy and looting by the United States. Now, the structure of the deal is unclear, and Beijing has made it quite clear that it's concerned that Beijing and ByteDance can lose control. So just a couple of hours ago, the China Daily posted an editorial arguing that any deal would have to, quote, pass muster with Beijing since the Chinese government here restricts uh, exports of technology. Now, official media have been quoting experts um, over the past couple of days uh, saying that Beijing now has 30 working days from when ByteDance applied for that license to decide whether or not it's going to give preliminary approval to the company. Uh, There are a lot of questions about whether or not Beijing would want to stall the decision um, and see if it would be a more favorable outcome past the election, because those 30 working days, Carl, uh, takes us right up to November 3rd.
4: Eunice, um, just based on what what the the messaging is uh, that you've detailed right there, I mean, The Chinese authorities seemingly willing to allow the shutdown to happen, if that's really what it comes down to. It seems both sides trying to to play a harder line.
6: Yeah, that's right. I mean, it really is a game of chicken. Because on the one hand, if you do see uh, TikTok shutting down, I mean, that would just be um, a terrible um, um, outcome for China, which has for so long really hoped to see its Chinese companies become global players. And TikTok and ByteDance is really one of the very few Chinese companies that has made headway in this regard. Uh, On the other hand, it is worried about losing control to the Americans. Um, And, of course, you could argue that that's a bit ironic, uh, given that a TikTok wouldn't even exist in China because the Chinese government would never allow it.
2: Uh, Eunice, thanks for that. Uh, We're going to watch it closely. Uh, Kelly, I am curious to know what you make of the argument that TikTok's lawyer essentially made to the judge, and we're waiting for the opinion. But that is, why would you ban something when negotiations are underway that would make
3: that whole thing unnecessary? Although, Carl, at the same time, what is it to the judge? You know, it, it, it's interesting to me. I know we spoke with Senator Cruz this morning on Squawkbox about this. And, you know, it, it's just, I, again, I'm not a lawyer. I'm not a judicial expert. But, I mean, questions of the America's negotiating stance as it relates to China, to me, would seem beside the point, right? Yeah,
2: uh, we're going to wait to see. There might be more granularity in the opinion, which I think is going to be issued today. As we said, guys, uh, futures indicating a nice jump here at the open on this Monday morning, with the Dow, the S&P, and the Nasdaq all coming off their best day in a couple of weeks. Dow may jump by 350, and we're going to watch really the 100-day moving average today as some sign of stability. Squawk on the streets back in a minute.
7: It's totally fake news. Made up, fake. We went through the
0: same stories. You could have asked me the same questions four years ago. I had to litigate this and talk about it. Uh, totally fake news. Now, actually, I paid tax. but And you'll see that as soon as my tax returns. It, it's under-order. They've been under for a
7: long time.
3: That was the president yesterday in response to the New York Times story on his taxes. Robert Frank has more on what that report showed. Robert
1: kelly well it shows large income offset by large business losses that's the picture emerging of the trump empire from the new york times report citing the president's 20 years of tax returns now he over- earned over 600 million dollars in income since 2005 the vast majority of that over 420 million dollars came from the apprentice and related marketing and we also made $176 million from two office buildings that he co-owns with for NATO, one in New York, the other in San Francisco, and about $20 million a year from the office and retail space of Trump Tower. Now, he took all of that cash and earnings and went on a buying binge in the mid-2000s, buying golf courses and the Washington Hotel, which have all lost hundreds of millions of dollars when it comes to the tax returns. Now, his Dural Club, Losing 162 million through 2018, and the Washington Hotel losing 56 million. Mar a Lago was the one standout, appearing to benefit from the president's election. Initiation fees soaring to six million from only 660 thousand dollars in 2016. The president taking out 26 million dollars in income from that club before 2018. That is three times the earlier amounts that he had taken out. Now, he also has a lot of debt. He's defaulted or not paid back over 200 million in debt and has another 421 million that he has personally guaranteed with the vast majority of that coming due in the next four years. And unfortunately, he won't get any help from financial investments or these markets. He actually sold all of his stocks over 200 million worth between 2014 in 2016. Carl, a bit ironic for a man who has paid so much attention to the stock market that he's not been invested. Back to you.
2: Robert, we're going to watch uh, to see how the, what the response is, obviously, with the debate tomorrow night, which uh, some wonder if, if that's going to be a game changing event. Uh, Robert, thanks. Take a break here as we uh, watch the futures await the opening bell in a few moments. Uh, keep your eye on the dollar. Obviously, an important story today uh, as we uh, Watch some of the technical levels as well. Back in a minute.
7: You seek the key, but first, you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today.
2: Fair number of upgrades to talk about on this Monday morning as we get ready for the opening bell, including, Kelly, uh, this upgrade of FedEx out of Deutsche. They go to 318. You know, it's been a series of these upgrades of both UPS and FedEx in the past few days from analysts who are
3: basically arguing it's not too late. Right, Carl. So we were talking at the top of the hour about what's going on with the rotation in the market or what, you know, what the market's kind of telling us about the macro, the FedEx call pretty encouraging. So it's predicated on, on profit margin expansion, basically. I mean, we all know they pass through the surcharges. The analyst there is saying, look, that's going to help them kind of smooth out demand through the holiday season, so they won't be having uh, faced with so much of, of this like peak rush all at once that just overwhelms the system. So a lot of this is, is profit margins across a number of different businesses. Interestingly enough, they also talk about how the vaccine itself could have some upside. You know, our reporters have been talking about this, but uh, FedEx, maybe UPS as well, they've been investing in some of these freezer technologies that will literally transport the vaccine. So they see kind of a double upside there um, on the one hand from the surge in e-commerce. And they've mentioned also kind of a, a B2B aspect here that's good for margins as well. And on the other or at least has lower costs. And on the other side some upside to the vaccine. Interesting note on UPS as well. When we talked to Arthur Blank, the founder of Home Depot, a couple of weeks ago, you know, Carol Tomei used to be the CFO at Home Depot. Now she's the CEO at UPS. And he talked about how important it was to him to make everybody work in the store. So even while she was CFO, she'd have the apron on and be working the aisles. He told the story how she helped one woman kind of get a wheelbarrow all the way to her house because uh, the woman couldn't do it on her own. So when I look at that UPS call, Carl, I can't help to think uh, about, that, about that anecdote as well.
2: Yeah, uh, Carol's, Carol's amazing, and it's incredible what she's done over there in this short time. But, uh, Mike, to Kelly's point, better margins, better B2B mix, uh, sort of flattening costs. And, of course, we know about all the surcharges that you and I are
4: going to be paying yeah. this
2: holiday season.
4: For sure. And you know, the other thing about the context when it comes to FedEx is the stock isn't even as high as it traded in early 2018. So had this really nasty uh, two-year downturn. Uh, I think expectations and, and earnings forecasts got beaten down. It seemed like a value trap for you know, quarters on end. They kept serially disappointing. So then you have this internal restructuring uh, going on just at the time that a lot of the, the tailwinds kick in in terms of, uh, obviously, online delivery and, uh, and, and some of the stuff. Even with B2B, now it's something that's on the come as opposed to something that's just baked in. So it seems like that's the dynamic in terms of uh, people getting more excited about the group.
2: Yeah, yeah. As we said, uh, Deutsche on FedEx and then Key does take UPS to overweight, looking at 190. There's the opening bell at the NYSE and the NASDAQ this morning. Uh, Mike, you know, we began the, the hour with the discussion about what September has brought us. And I remember uh, last week you were asking whether or not 3230 was a Uh, Effective working low uh, has so many uh, magic elements about it, Uh, support from uh, earlier in the year, the June high, 10%. It sounds like you think uh, that number is important.
4: We got traction there a few times. I don't think you can declare it finished. But, yes, it seemed as if the market was very focused in that area uh, and really kind of needed incremental new reasons to go down and and some of the macro stuff that was getting some people concerned last week included dollar rallying a little bit. It's down this morning and uh, Kelly's all over the real yield story. I know this, right? So you had this <laughs> dynamic where, you know, uh, yields t- going below the rate of inflation deeply. They actually bounced in the last, let's like, say, 10 days. They're backing off today. So some of the macro messages are like, OK, maybe there was nothing bigger that the market was registering uh, in terms of economic stress. Credit markets, yeah, you saw some of spreads but it almost seemed more in response to the stock market weakness than than something that uh, that bond markets were sniffing out Kelly
3: Mike I got to pull up the 10 year uh, tips now as, as we're talking about this but you're absolutely right so there was this whole paradigm you know thought for over the past couple of months then listen, if real yields stay at minus 1% or whatever, if the dollar really starts dropping, goes through 90 because we have this huge fiscal deficit that we haven't seen since the Tea Party movement, you know, and going back to, to previous to that era, you know, does that lower, kind of lower plateau for a weaker dollar then open up all kinds of interesting rallies and all sorts of U.S. assets, right? So, yes, stocks, but also gold and all of these other things. And I'm curious, Mike, at what you're hearing, because that dollar weakness that we started to see a couple of months ago has really stalled out. You know, we're now just kind of hovering in this range. And so if you were counting on that to be kind of an underpinning for higher stocks, higher gold, higher everything, it's it's certainly not panning out as quickly as you might have thought. Given that the the budget deficit is going to be like 18 percent of GDP this year, I mean, that's where... All of the stuff about D.C. and the budget that we're largely ignoring, the market is largely ignoring, but that's kind of where it's going to matter is if it shows up in that dollar weakness.
4: For sure. It's obviously showed that it's not going to be a one-way trade. I think the storylines that are developing around uh, the dollar dynamics are, well, people just got too aggressively negative on it. And it was a very crowded trade. So maybe this is just, you know, a little bit uh, of, a, of a let up and a, a counter uh, trend move here just to have a little bit of a bounce in the dollar. Um, and then also there was a story that's also is percolating about how the Fed somehow was net hawkish uh, in its messaging in the last couple of weeks. In other words, yes. saying it's yes. all we can do here and not getting very specific about future QE and not really trying to gun it uh, to, to overachieve on the inflation side. Maybe the market's saying we don't think they can do it even if they want to. So, again, I think that might be a little bit of people applying a narrative to what was happening in the markets anyway. But it seems like, uh, Carl, that's the stuff that you know we were consumed with last week and maybe you're getting a little, uh, a little bit of a break from this morning.
2: Yeah, yeah. S and P back to 33.45, uh, trying to get back to the 50-day for the first time uh, since about September 18. Kelly, I wonder what you're making of um, two things. One is cash balances at S and P companies up 35% so far this year. Uh, Barclays says, which they expect to be used not for capex but for dividends and buybacks. And on that front, we got Carmax resuming buybacks, Lockheed adding to, and with an 8% div hike on Friday. Uh, So I wonder if that, you know, Goldman warned us about buybacks early in the year, saying don't expect much from 2020. uh, But I wonder if that pendulum is starting to swing.
3: No, I think so. This is definitely the area to watch. The entire rally that we saw for the last decade was buyback driven. That made it fairly reliable. And it meant that every time you had a sharp sell off, you often had a sharp correction because those buyback programs were such a force this time around, I mean, yes, anecdotally, they might be starting again. I don't think we're anywhere near what we saw last time. In fact, the biggest force in the market in some ways really has been the retail investor. I think that makes it a very, very different kind of rally that we're potentially going to see over the next couple of years than what we saw before. And Mike, I'd be curious for your thoughts on this, but you know, a retail investor who's often has more hot money, I would think, than a steady corporate buyback program, could lend to bigger upsides and bigger downsides and maybe less upside overall. I mean, that's certainly one line of thought I've talked to Brian Reynolds about. But even though we're seeing companies dip their toe back in, I think Reynolds is right. I think it's going to be debt buybacks not stock buybacks mm-hmm. that are driving us for years to come. That acts as a little bit of an overhang on the macro.
4: Right. I, I think that's very fair, especially when you consider that, uh, yes, you're seeing a little bit of folks returning to the buyback side of things, but it's very selective. And I think it's not going to just be that, you know, everybody is in the buyback game just because that's what you do uh, with excess cash flow. You have massive amounts of corporate debts been raised this year. Yes, cash balances are up, but debt's up a little bit more. Uh, and I think all that tells you is that companies are going into the last part of this year saying okay we have the cushion what do we do with it? Uh, and the retail flow, I do think it's an interesting dynamic. It creates a little bit more of an emotional energy in the market. I don't think it's like smart money, dumb money. It's just a different uh, type of, uh, of buying interest. It's kind of a buy what you love uh, move. It's not just sort of quant models and algos arguing with each other over fair value. So yeah, it's, it creates a different, uh, a different flow. And maybe, you know, the August overshoot had a lot to do with that to the upside. Uh, I'm not sure that we necessarily have seen any kind of an overshoot to the downside, but maybe that could be out there as well.
2: Hmm. Mike, got to watch energy this morning, uh, best performing sector. Uh, Chevron's leading the Dow, uh, gets upgraded today over at B of A. They go to buy, although they bring their price target to 96, uh, basically arguing that a 7% yield more than discounts any kind of recovery in the downstream. But also um, some M&A, as uh, Devin and WPX agree to this merger, a $12 billion enterprise deal. Um, so I wonder whether or not uh, energy is one uh, structurally to watch over the coming days.
4: Yeah, it's obviously some of the laggard groups getting uh, getting a little bit of a lift today, and energy certainly one of them. Energy stocks have just badly underperformed the actual commodity, right? So it's been part of this whole, you know, we think this is a secular decline industry and, and we can't really touch it. But yes, if you've done the, the work on Chevron and you say the dividend is coverable at 7, 7%, we know what's going on with Exxon, 10% nominal dividend yield right now. Markets essentially saying we don't really buy it. Uh, but yeah, I mean, there's no doubt about it that the, the makings are there for this group to uh, to, to make a little bit uh, of a recovery move. But no, I don't think anybody believes it's going to be, you know, a leader rationalizing these, you know, industries with overcapacity, like energy, and by the way, steel today, too, Cleveland Cliffs uh, biasing Ars- mm-hmm. Arslan Middle's uh, uh, U.S. business, you know, that's going to, you know, get applause in the market if the, if the, the numbers work.
2: Then there's chips as well, Kel. Um, Micron tomorrow night, and City adds it to its negative catalyst list because they expect a disappointment. And then we're also watching some of these new U.S. restrictions on SMIC. As that sort of low-grade fever, uh, as, as pertains to U.S.-China relations, continues, not just in uh, social media but on uh, chips as well.
3: Yeah, you hate to be on a negative catalyst list, right? <laughs> no one, no one wants <laughs> to be on that. Uh, the SMIC thing is interesting because, in many ways, what, as important as TikTok is, obviously because of its uh, user base and its ubiquity amongst you know in terms of the social media landscape. I mean, SMIC is a really big deal. The U.S. has taken a really hard line with a lot of these Chinese companies the last couple of years. Uh, Even if you go back to ZTE, you know, and they're really, I know we talked to Eunice about this a moment ago, but there really has not been much of a response on the Chinese side. The semiconductors, uh, we've heard this time and again. I think Matt Maley was pointing it out last week. I mean, this is the area to watch you know, going back to what is this market going to look like if it gets its feet under it. You know, you see outperformance there, negative catalysts notwithstanding. It kind of tells you that the market is getting its mojo back. One final note on energy I just wanted to go back to. There's this uh, Bank of America upgrade at Chevron that kind of captures, Mike, what you were saying a moment ago. They upgrade the stock, but they lower the price target to 96. Yeah. I mean, and they say this thing has a 7% yield. A lot of bad news is priced in. So you have 7% yield at Chevron, Mike. I think you said a 10% yield at Exxon. I mean, either those dividends are going away. or These are like the the dividend opportunities of a lifetime, right?
4: Pretty much. Uh, You know, you can go back to early 2016. You had a little bit of a similar game going on there in terms of some of the, the majors had yields. Well north of uh, six eight uh, percent, and you know pretty much the, you you won the bet on that if you said that they were sustainable. I'm not saying it's it's the case this time. I mean I know that uh, you know that if you look at Exxon just in terms of the leverage and what they've spent on a, you know on producing assets over the last couple of years, a lot of concern there. The big question is does the market already you know discount it and uh, and you know I, what's also interesting is they've kind of lost the tether uh, to having leverage to. Uh, an economic rebound to some degree, it seems, as if if you kind of believe crude is broadly uh, broadly range-bound. So nobody thinks that, uh, you know, I mean, miles driven is going to go up, but how much to cut into, you know, the unused supply, Carl?
2: Yeah. Speaking of miles driven, Kelly, how about Uber getting uh, the blessing of uh, London? Remember when that was such a big story and uh, the worries about whether losing the UK was going to be existential to the company? I mean, it's I think it's for 18 months, but the the judge does call them a fit and proper operator, uh, despite what he called uh, historical
3: failings. This is a warning shot to California as well. I mean, to me it says, and I know Uber's on the ballot in California this fall, but Uber is popular enough, given all of the issues that it's had, That it is reinstated in london and tell me it's not going to be effectively reinstated in california i mean again we're talking about the business model we're talking about the dynamics it's allowed to operate under but it's very very popular with users and i think that politicians are finding that their efforts to crack down on this if they mean well there are other ways to help out with benefits with that side of thing you know benefits portability carl When it comes to undermining the business models of these two, Uber and Lyft, and their viability with the public, I think they found out you have to be very, very careful. And I can see the stocks up 4% today. To me, it totally says they might win the long game here simply because they provide a service that people really want.
2: Yeah, yeah. Although it's been remarkable to see it really trade between 30 and 40 uh, since the, what, beginning of May. Uh, We'll see if that range gets busted anytime soon. Um, let's get to Bob Bassani and see what's moving. Morning, Bob.
8: Good morning, Carl. Happy Monday, everybody. Great open, 10 to 1, advancing the declining stocks. This is largely about the reopening story. Reopening stimulus, that's what's moving the stock market. Not so good last week, better. Florida, of course, uh, about its reopening announcement. There was comments in Spain, Barcelona, uh, Madrid, rejecting calls to lock down the city there. So you see here the reopening stories, uh, banks, uh, energy, industrials doing better. Uh tech doing better and lagging are all defensive stuff, uh healthcare, consumer staples, uh REITs, utilities. Uh so again about the uh the, the reopening. Still mega caps after a modest rally. Mega caps have had a very good week last week and again today. You see everything's up 1% to 2%. That's sort of the story of last week. And I called it a cynical rally last week because the cynical play last week after a modest correction in mega cap was to buy those big mega caps because they would be beneficiaries of a potential increase in cases. Last week, there was much more concerns about the lockdown, or excuse me, about the, the reopening not going as well. So if you took a, take a look at last week how these mega caps did they all rallied in the face of believing that they would be beneficiaries in the, case that, in, this, in the event that the situation worsened on the reopening story. So that was last week, and this rally in the mega caps is continuing in today. We saw also outside of the mega caps all the work-from-home stuff working as well last week in the belief that they would be beneficiaries in case the reopening f- story faltered. So if you look at last week, Zoom and Peloton and CrowdStrike and DocuSign, uh, put them up. All those did really well. They're all up again modestly today because we've got a broad rally going on. Uh, but today, it's a little bit more about that broader reopening story. If you look at those reopening names, the travel names, uh, your Deltas, your Hyatts, Live Nation, the usual suspects like Avis, uh, they're all rallying modestly. But again, this was a very different story last week. None of these reopening names were doing well. Uh, at all. So uh, we saw the same names last week had a terrible time of it. So this tells you the market is very dependent on the reopening story. And when the reopening goes bad, everybody flees to mega cap uh, and work from home names under the theory that they would do better here. So you can see this, this sort of push and pull over reopening and to a lesser extent over the stimulus story. So where are we right now? Well, I mean, look, we've four down weeks, folks. There's no getting away from it here. Uh, We are down almost 6% for the S&P for the month of September. Mega caps are down 5%. Small caps, and there's your sort of recovery play. A lot of the small caps are in the recovery sector down 7%. So uh, first down month, if this continues since March, uh, most uh, other risk assets around the world, they're also down. Uh, So the question is, how much of the reopening story really is going to matter into October? That's the big question, the depth and duration of the reopening story. As for the this week, big stories this week, uh the IPOs just keep marching on here. We're gonna have a very busy week. We've got almost a dozen of them coming in, two, including two direct listings. Haven't seen this for a long time here, but we've got two of them. Palantir, you know that we've talked about it, big data analytics. Uh, and uh, Asana, which is a work management platform that's getting a lot of attention as well. That's expected to do fairly well. But we've also got some China IPOs. Yes, they're still coming here in the United States. Uh, Chindata Group Holdings, this is a very big data center operator in China. Very interesting company, given all of the, the, the issues around China-U.S. trade. Uh, they're going to raise $500 billion. They may be 4 or $5 billion market cap here in the United States. And we've even got some conventional companies, Academy Sports and Outdoors. It's a big sporting goods companies. Uh, They're going to try to raise 250, 300 million dollars, maybe a billion and a half to two billion dollar market cap. But uh, I'm leaving out a lot of companies. There's almost a dozen of them this week. Bottom line is it's still looking like a great time to float an IPO or a direct listing in the case of Asana or Palantir. Carl, back to you.
2: Yeah, that's going to be another big one, Bob. Thank you, uh, Bob Bassani. Before we go to break, let's take a look at uh, some of the uh, treasuries and how they're faring. Yield on the 10-year up, while the yield on the 30 also higher at 141. Japanese government bond prices uh, were down on Monday but recovered later in the day as the strength in equities around the world really dampened the safe haven appeal. Uh, finally, look at the dollar retreating from that two-month high. We are about 15 minutes into the open on this Monday. Stocks up for a second straight day best two-day stretch for the S&P since June. Question is, can September manage to make up for some lost time? We're back in a moment. The preeminent investing conference of the year is only two days away, and there's still time to get in. You don't want to miss the likes of Stephen Mnuchin, Steve Schwarzman, Mary Erdos, Chamath Palihapitiya, and a lot more. Go to deliveringalpha.com,
3: learn how to register, and stay with us. Shares of Snap and Spotify are moving higher this morning after Guggenheim upgrades the pair, taking Snap to a buy and raising Spot from a rare sell to a neutral. The analyst behind these calls joins us now, Guggenheim's Michael Morris. Michael, it's great to have you here. And the rationale for this call is interesting to me because I have to say it reads a little bit like, you know, valuations of all software companies are high. So these companies should be high too. (laughs) explain to us what's going on
6: here.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think uh, in simple terms, you're not, you're not wrong. Um, the market has been strong. Secular winners, particularly in technology, have been the strongest, right? But, you know, we're still bullish overall uh, on the potential for long-term value creation, especially with interest rates as low as they are. And so we're looking for opportunities where I think the market is going to come to a new realization. And in this particular case, we see many of these Internet names as underappreciated, you know, when you compare them to their software counterparts, uh, which we think sets the st- stage for, um, you know, pretty strong relative strength, uh, relative growth over the next year. And uh, and so happy to, to, to go into a little more detail on it. But, but basically, we think winners are going to keep winning. Uh, and we think Internet companies are unique. And, and believe it or not, even after their moves, uh, have areas where they're underappreciated.
3: Yeah. So let's talk about Spotify for a moment because of the pair, you're relatively more cautious on that. And until this upgrade, you had a sell rating on it. And here's something that I've been wondering about, you know, people have raised. As you build out these Apple Plus bundles, you know, which Apple just announced, as you build out what might inevitably be some kind of Google Plus bundle, you know, as big tech bundles everything, is Spotify going to be left as the smallest player with the least leverage standing alone?
0: Sure, it's a fair question and and something I think investors uh, struggle with. Uh, pretty consistently, right? We have a number of, of just behemoths in the industry and, and I think people say, well, why won't large company X just sort of kill relatively smaller company Y? And, and what we find uh, and what we see pretty consistently is that despite that narrative, uh, businesses uh, that with, with, with uh, excellent products, excellent talent, excellent business models, uh, are able to compete specifically in a single field uh, and really, if not dominate, at least carve out uh, very attractive positions for themselves. Spotify definitely represents this. It's a company that's been pretty singularly focused on on being excellent in delivering audio uh, content to its consumers. I would argue it has a best-in-class interface. Uh, and at the end of the day, while the bundles may be compelling to a certain cohort, uh, the, the challenge to having Spotify, even if you are a user more broadly of Apple or Google or Amazon products, is a pretty low hurdle to continue to um, to have that uh, product on your phone. Uh, and so I think that Spotify is decently positioned to continue to be um, a best-in-class player uh, despite some intensifying competition.
4: Michael, somewhat similar uh, question about Snap. Uh, one of the reasons that some of the big software companies get those valuations is there are these massive ubiquitous platforms. It seems as if their addressable markets are, uh, are huge and growing. Whereas Snap, you know, is it also just kind of a, a little sibling uh, type player here uh, in, in a market, by the way, where TikTok could go from zero to 100 million in just a few years?
0: Yeah, I, look, it's a, it's a very fair question. I mean, generally speaking, software is a tremendous industry right they have uh, moats around deep moats around their businesses uh, they have unique ideas they have talented teams high degrees of recurring revenue i mean it's it's uh, you you we understand what what the enthusiasm is and when you look at these internet companies i, I think and you know you, you asked about snap particularly um, but i think across the space that they're competing with with software companies for equally talented team members they have significant R&D investments in, in, in functions like machine learning and augmented reality and commerce. And Snap, in particular, is one of these businesses, right? They've developed an app that, that is uh, effectively communications and entertainment software for consumers instead of enterprises, but the network effect makes it a very sticky product. And now their R&D is going into things like augmented reality, You know, sophisticated tech stacks that are, that are allowing them to uh, really connect commerce right? Shopping and direct response ads, shoppable ads that are considered so valuable and growing in value. That tech investment is actually building out that functionality, effectively digging a moat. Now, they have to keep people on the platform, right? It's more challenging than enterprise in that regard, maintaining that network effect. But I think the investment, the unique power of their technology is is truly as strong as it is for software, and that will be appreciated by the market.
3: Yeah, and SNAP is up 7% over the past week. It's up 3.5% this morning. Michael, thanks so much for your time today. We appreciate it. Michael Morris. Carl? Thank you.
2: All right, Kel. Uh, Stocks getting off to a good start on this Monday morning. You can see breadth is pretty healthy. Energy, the banks, some selected retail uh, helping to the mix as uh, all sectors are in the green. We're back in a minute.
5: You've been listening to the opening
7: hour of CNBC's Squawk on the Street.